Good morning. My name is Chad. I don't think I introduced myself earlier. I'm one of the pastors here, and I, I get to stand here and celebrate with you God's Word and what He's doing. We're in 1 Corinthians. We've been walking through this, and if this is your first time with us, like, don't be overwhelmed. We are in the middle of this book, or at least in 3 and 4, and it is in the midst of an argument that you find yourself in. And so that, that could be like, whoa, wait a second, all these things. But uh, you might not think that you're divisive or an argumentative person, and yet this text has so much for all of us, and, and we want to dive in. So I want to pray for our time together, and we'll just kick it off. We'll dive straight into it. Father, thank you. We need you. We invite you to form us today, open our eyes today. Spirit of God, stir our affections today. Stir our affections today, God. That we would be people who don't just go through the motions of church, but experience the fullness of Christ. What you've done, what you're doing, and what you promised to do. And so, Spirit, we need you for that, every bit of it. Help us. Help me. Help my friends here today to do the same. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, the, this church in Corinth is dividing over all sorts of things. But at its core, we could just kind of boil it down to just direction and sin. Direction being like, well, who's going to lead us? And which way are we going to go? And what are we going to do? And then sin over, like you name it, it comes up in this book. It comes up over all sorts of things. There's, there's sinful things that the rest of this book unpacks. And they're just divided on how to handle all sorts of stuff. So we, we just step into it. It's the middle of an argument. The, the Apostle Paul planter of churches and the author of much of the New Testament is speaking to these people and he's calling the people of this little church to stop trusting in their own understanding, to look past their own preferences and to see what God is doing in them and through them. That's kind of what's happening. That's, that's an umbrella uh, over this whole section right here. That's where he is in it. And I just want to name, like Paul is neck deep in about 20 metaphors at this point. In chap By chapter 3, Paul's got metaphors stacked on top of metaphors on top of metaphors. And that can get kind of confusing. That can get confusing. He has a number here. And as a, a pastor trying to be faithful, I bring my own mess of metaphors to all these things. So I'm not always helpful in it. But let me try to just frame up where he's at in this because one of them actually helps kind of give us uh, an uh, handles as we walk through this. He says this at the end of our text today. He says, this is for your benefit, brothers, that you may not go beyond what is written, that none of you may, may not be puffed up. Puffed up. Like, what is that? Like, he's talking about being puffed up in all these ways. And, and here's this picture that he throws out to us. What I want you to think about and where we're going to walk today, the work that we're going to do is around, one, what does it mean to be puffed up? How, what does that look like in regular life and the workings of a church? And then the larger picture that's been discussed is, is the opposite of that. What does it look like to walk out this spirit-filled life? Like in, in, in everyday practical ways, right? like what is he calling us to? He's not, he's not calling us to some magic works all the time. He's calling us to live lives. But 
through and with the Spirit in this. And then finally, the, the, the last thing we're going to do is just sit in this idea of like, what do we do with this? How are you supposed to respond to this? And I want you to know, like this text in particular, the word of God is living and active and every bit of it is good for us, every single bit of it. But this text in particular is like every single word of this section is so considered and so important. It, there, there are no summary devices going on right here. It is just Paul layer on top of layer of making his argument before these people. And so we're going to walk through it pretty linear today. We're just going to walk verse by verse through this. And so let's start right here. What does a puffed up life look like? What does that look like? Verse 18, just right off the bat, here comes Paul, guns a-blazing, let no one deceive himself. Let's just start right there. What does a puffed up life look like? A life that's deceiving themselves. A life that thinks that they're more than they are. A life that is, is actually uh, like deceived as to what reality is in their life. And, and yet we miss this so often. Like puffed up rarely arrives in a package on your doorstep. Puffed up rarely comes from external things. Notice what he says. For most of us, most of the time, it's from within. Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. He goes on, if, if, if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let's pause right here. Let's pause. You are deceiving yourself if you don't have any moments where you think you're wise in this age. Like all of us have these moments where we're like, man, I'm smarter than those jokers. Like, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to do this stuff. If you, you want to know, like, you see this, like, in reality, go to a kid's sports game. Go to a kid's sports game. <laughs> like, you'll hear it. Like, these people don't know anything. We got a coach right here. Like, like the amount of people who told, like, their whatever little league coach how to do things better is, like, unbelievable. You see it all over the place. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, and I'll just make a blanket statement, all of us are guilty to some measure of this or another. Let him become a fool that he may become wise. I want you to hear me on this. There is a place for strong opinions. There is a place for disagreement, but not from arrogance and not from misplaced pride and not from selfishness and certainly not from a spirit of divisiveness. There's no place for that. In fact, in fact, Paul is telling us we're, we're told to run the opposite direction. Go the opposite way from that. If you think you've got all the answers, run. Run. And become the fool in order to become wise. Now, why? Like the why? Why is, why is this happening? 19 goes into it for that's there to help us understand it. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God. 
Like the things that the world builds up and says, this is what it's all about. This is what is going to bring you health, happiness, and everything else that comes along with it. The, those things that the world lifts up as being the most important are foolishness or folly to God. And Paul highlights the ridiculousness of this self-deception through a pair of quotations. And these are easy to miss because it goes real fast. The second part of 19 says, for it is written, quote, he catches, he catches the wise in their craftiness. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And that, that quote is directly from Job chapter 5. If you're familiar with that story, Eliphaz, Job's friend, comes alongside him after a series of really horrific things happening in Job's life. And Eliphaz comes around and he goes like, hey, buddy, that's really terrible. I bet I know why this is happening in your life. You're a filthy sinner. Like, that's essentially what is being told right here. Like you're a filthy sinner, which is factually accurate. But that's not why all these things are happening. That's not why these things are happening. Eliphaz has all the wisdom of the world, right? He's like, I'm going I'm to be right here. And he comes alongside him. He's got all his thoughts. He's got everything that, that is happening. He knows, like, he's got it figured out. That word catches is interesting. It's the only time it's used right here in the New Testament, this particular usage of it, to grasp with the hand. To grasp with the hand. But then it's paired with craftiness. This word is actually used throughout the New Testament, and it is always attached to deceitfulness. Like, so you, you catch it like... He catches these things. He catches the wise in their craftiness. The Lord's hand catches us in our deceitfulness, in the idea that we've got it all figured out, in our craftiness right here. In fact, Jesus uses this word. In Luke 20, this is used. Jesus is speaking. The, the people who have opposed Jesus, that's what the, the text says, they've opposed Jesus, they've come, and they're making their case against Jesus with all of their worldly wisdom. And then we're told Jesus says this. As I miss it, Jesus told them he perceived their craftiness. Paul wanted to remind the, these people in Corinth, the, those seeking to build a following at his expense, those, those trying to make a name for themselves at God's expense, that God sees through all their craftiness. And that's, that's helpful for us, right? That's helpful because the, Eliphaz didn't think he was being crafty. He, didn't, he wasn't trying to make a name for himself. Nothing in the text makes us think that about Eliphaz. Maybe there were good intentions for those people opposing Jesus, but they had all their thoughts, didn't they? They had all their understanding that they were working through, which was actually leading away from the heart of God. And so often we can be people who are divisive and we never actually realize it. We're divisive in the fact that we just come with our own wisdom and our own understanding and not a humility that comes from the spirit of God at work in our life. We come with our own understanding. You know, when I, when I first came to faith, 
When I first came to faith, I was really frustrated because I saw all these people who were sitting up straight trying to be perfect all the time, and I, that was not me, and I did not understand it, and I was pretty judgmental about all these people and things. And someone handed me a book that, that parts of it has certainly changed my life and helped me in so many ways. And here's what one of those lines were. It got my attention so deeply that it sits with me often. He says this, Brendan Manning in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel says, when I get honest, I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt, I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said, I'm a rational animal. I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. And to live by grace means to acknowledge that my whole life story, the light side and the dark side, in admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. Experiences the goodness of God. Man, when we're far too caught up in trying to project an image, we're actually being divisive. When we're trying to project that we've got everything figured out and all of it put together, we're actually leading away from unity. We're leading away from depth of relationship. And we're not actually following after Jesus. Manning's story is interesting because he's a messed up dude. He names it. He acknowledges it. Manning is a priest or was a priest who was a priest who after he got his collar, after he went to work in the priesthood, became an alcoholic, which leads to not some clever line, but an actual hard earned like painful part of his story which is like I am loved by God and I have this incredible capacity for beer that has messed up my life in so many ways how do you reckon those things but that it's all grace at work it's not his his goodness or his merit or his wisdom or his thinking it's all grace the second quote is actually just as interesting. And they just come layered right on top of each other. It comes from Psalm 94, verse 11. Paul reads it really fast. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Paul says that they're, they're void of results, but he's not having a return on investment conversation. He's not just saying like, hey, your thoughts aren't, don't amount to anything, so don't think. That's not what's being said. He's saying that thinking apart from the spirit, worldly thinking is futile. It, it amounts to nothing. But I, I think what's helpful for us to understand is Paul's not just referencing 11. He is, he quotes that directly. But these people, these hearers grew up memorizing what we call the Old Testament. They knew these Psalms. And they would pull out what he's talking about. Here's what verse eight says. Psalm 94, verse eight 
understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. But they are but a breath. They had their thoughts. Of course they did. They had their reasonings. The people here in Corinth had all of those. They could pile up all kinds of clever arguments and so could you and so can I. But it isn't just Paul who speaks like this. Uh, Jesus actually talks about thoughts, the thoughts of those just going off of our own worldly wisdom and, and going after our own way. Jesus tells the parable about the man storing up treasures, building his barns and, and doing everything while not recognizing that his time was over and the judgment was right before him. That's what Paul's putting his finger on, right? It's like, do you not think that God sees how you're living? <laughs> One commentator says, these passages are like a sign that says, warning, touching this cable will kill you. Like these passage, this passage right here is a big warning. It's Paul like waving his arms. If we are going to live like the world lives and yet still claim the name of Jesus, like you are in such mortal danger for your soul. Because it's a revealer. Spirit move. (laughs) Siri, do not. When we think that our actions don't have to match our words, we're in really dangerous ground. And this text is a warning, but it it comes with a tension, right? There's a tension in it because it's like Paul's been saying that they have the hope of the gospel, that these people are brothers and sisters. Even our passage right here says that. And yet, how is he warning them of eternal consequences at the same time he's doing this? Like, which one is it? And the, the reality is that both can be true. Paul doesn't know who is actually saved and who isn't. That's, that's God's work. But Paul has confidence in the church and the work of Jesus that their actions will be revealed. That's what we talked about last week. It'll be burned up. There are some things that are perishable and some things that are not. But what will never be burned up is the finished work of Jesus. Divisiveness within the church is a life or death matter. It doesn't just happen with big signs around it of like, hey, find your camp, get with it, and take up the swords. It happens when we we go just based on our own worldly wisdom and our own thinking, and we just say, well, this is what I think is best, and so I don't care what you think. If we just operate out of our own ways, we're deceiving ourselves. And the first words of our text today is, let no one deceive himself. 
If you're in any way divisive, in any way, small, large, in any way divisive, stop kidding yourself that you are wise and instead look to the foolishness of God revealed in the cross. All of us, all of us are at risk of being puffed up in this way. All of us have this in us where we can do it. But So then what are we supposed to do? Like what does life in the spirit look like? And Paul goes on to address it. He's been making this case for chapters now. The spirit-filled living will lead you towards humbleness, humble unity, and away from divisions. Notice what verse 21 says. It says, let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. And he's speaking specifically to the divisions that are happening in Corinth. So let's not rip this out of context. He's speaking specifically to that. Well, some follow Apollos and some follow Paul and all these types of things. He's speaking to that, but he lifts their eyes to something really important. The rest of 21 goes on. It says, for all things are yours. Notice where he goes. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you're like, whoa, Paul, that escalated quickly. Paul moved well past just men real fast to life, death, present, future. He moves this thing from squabbling over preferences to something eternal and cosmic. And it's not empty promises. It's not the empty promises of a politician who's just trying to get elected. This is the guarantee of one who knows where the real treasure is found. Is that like, friends, you're dividing over silly things that that are not at the heart of this. And sometimes there are important things that we disagree on, but don't divide. Recognize that all are yours in Christ, which is exactly where he goes in verse 23. And you are Christ. And Christ is God. Christ is God's. He says, listen, You're not mine or Apollos's. You're not Jeff Nines or Josh Curry's. You're not anybody's people. You're Christ's. And Christ is God's. And he has to stop there because he keeps unpacking. He just keeps diving in. But this is, this is all part of this letter. In 3.16, he says, do you not know? Do you not know who you are? Do you not know that you're a temple of this living God? He goes back to that again in chapter 6. Do you not know who you are? You are Christ. And then the very next line, chapter 4, verse 1, which for us gets confusing because we're like, whoa, this is a whole new chapter. Let's start there. It, it comes directly out of all of this. And it really doesn't make sense apart from what's been going on because it's all part of this argument. Paul immediately turns and says, this is how one should regard us. And in context, as we read this, in context, the us is very important. 
It's very important because it's really easy for us to personalize this, but we read it like a yearbook where we start, we go to the back and we find our, what pages we're on and we start to read it and we read us and we're like, us, that means me. And in context, Paul is talking us, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. In context, that's what he's talking about right here. And he names it. He's arguing that there's, like, this is how this argument is, is decided right here. Here's how you're going to regard all of us and all these distractions that are going on. Here it is. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Like servants is, like absolutely, we see that throughout. Such an important picture for us. Servants of Christ, laying down their lives for Christ. Notice it doesn't say servants of Corinth. Servants of the church in Corinth. It says servants of Christ. It says servants of Christ. And then it goes on and he says, and stewards of the mysteries of God, which stewards is really important for us because that doesn't just take servants or anywhere. It can be all sorts of things, but stewards are something altogether different. Stewards are in the house, right? Stewards are in the house. And that is an entrusted responsibility because a steward has something that they're carrying. You're responsible for this. You're responsible for, for what this means. And, and it is, goes on. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, a couple of months ago this summer, we had a whole sermon around this passage right here. These verses, and I would encourage you to go back to it. We can help you find it, but it's all on the podcast. You can go to the website or the podcast and, and download and listen to this around serving, around serving right here. Uh, but this context right here really matters. And I want to draw your attention to something important right here, that they are found faithful. This is different than go to the woods and find yourself. This is, this is really different than like, hey, figure out who you are and then let us all know. Like we, we would deceive ourselves. We would all lie. We're all liars and would be found guilty, every single one of us. This is that, no, Paul's saying others will look at my life and we pray that we will be found faithful. Or we'd be found faithful. Listen where it goes because when we read it in context, it really does really does get our attention right here because he moves and he puts us in the, in the context of relationship that we would be found faithful. You guys can examine our lives, but don't think that that means that the church in Corinth sits in judgment over them because he immediately names it right here. And it's easy to be like, Paul, you are breathing fire and you are a judgmental son of a gun. Verse three, he says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. You're like, wait, Paul. Like, that's, what, that's how we end up with tattoos of like, nobody judges me but God. <laughs> Misreading this. I don't even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself. Like Paul's admitting, like Manning earlier, that he's a mess. 
I can deceive myself. I don't even know what's wrong in me. I don't judge myself. Like, I don't even see anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. It's the Lord who judges me. You see, in context, what we see is Paul's not looking to the Corinthians for his identity. He's not looking to the Corinthians for his worth or his value. He's not looking to the Corinthians to uh, say, well, you're good enough for us, Paul. He's not running to them for a verdict, whether he's somebody or not. That is settled. That is settled. Notice he goes on. It it like keeps burning right here. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation. Before the day, before the great day, this Lord is going to come and it will all be clear. See, Paul's using courtroom language. Making it clear that the verdict has already been handed down. And that is at the center of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus, that the the judgment has already been rendered. And because of Jesus, you're found not guilty. It's the verdict before the performance. And yet we, we live in a world in which it really doesn't matter what you believe. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're trying to perform to get the verdict. So my Muslim friends, you saw at least one uh, over there. Like my Muslim friends, when we were overseas, we, had all, we lived in this Muslim context. And my Muslim friends follow five pillars that they live by, which are in, in we would objectively say, like, these are good things, right? These are good things. And yet at the end of the day, all of my Muslim friends would say, like, I hope my hope is that Allah is pleased with me. I, I have a friend who is pretty outspoken atheist. And she's really nice. She's really nice. And she, she describes like, like, where's your hope? Where's your hope? At the end of the day, I hope that the universe recognizes that I'm a good person. And hear me, I am not mocking her. I'm not mocking her. What it speaks to is that every single one of us recognizes that there is a judgment to come. Every single one of us carries us in our bones that there is a judgment to come. G.K. Chesterton has this quote. He says this, fairy tales don't teach Do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. There's not a person on earth that you need to tell that there's a judgment coming. What everybody is trying to figure out is what is the verdict? And the gospel, the good news tells us that not only is the dragon dead and defeated, but death and judgment are defeated through Jesus Christ. For her and so many, maybe even you, 
living every day in the courtroom trying to get uh, a not guilty just by performing again and again. But the good news of Jesus tells us something different, that the verdict is in. And now I, I live differently on the basis of that verdict and not trying to get that verdict. Paul goes on in verse six, he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. See, this isn't abstract. This is Paul living this out for the good of others. This is Paul and Apollos living this out for the good of others. And then he attaches two clauses to it. He says that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, and that none of you, none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And so let's land this right here with like, what do we do with Paul's words? I want to be real quick right here. What do we do with it? Well, the first and most basic is that we need to take stock. We need to look ourselves in the mirror. We need to ask the spirit to help us see because we can deceive ourselves. We need to ask others in our life to help us see and to speak into us, to recognize those areas of deception where we're puffing ourselves up, to identify those spaces and places, those, those things in which we're, we're fooling ourselves. And maybe, maybe it's your accomplishments. Maybe you have a, a long list of accomplishments that you've got on a scroll that you roll out for everybody. And you're like, look, see, I am wise. Maybe you have all sorts of stuff in your life that you just keep pointing to. Look at this cool thing I have. Look at that. That makes me wise. Even like we can do this with our kids where we're like, man, my kids are pretty good. My kids are pretty good. That makes me smart and wise. We could do this with having enough money or enough things or looking the part or the right friends, you name it, we can turn it into an idol it was never intended to be. I don't know what yours are. I have a hard enough time identifying mine. I think I have a little bit, but I'm sure I have blind spots. My wife tells me I have blind spots a lot. Recognize and identify those things. And then as we start to recognize things, ref reflect, like, and not just like sit back and think about it. That's not what I'm talking about. But in terms of imitate, Paul in this chapter, chapter four, later on, he moves on and he says this in the immediate context of these words, like coming out of what we've just read, 14 through 16 says this. I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Hear the heart of the father right here. As beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, imitate. I urge you then, be imitators of me. And what does that mean? Well, I guess I'm supposed to write half the New Testament. No, no, it's not. You're not writing another letter for scripture and neither am I. You wanna know how you imitate him? As a servant of Christ, a steward of the mysteries of God, who by God's grace would be found faithful 
would be found faithful. We, you see, we, faithfulness is found not in being smart enough, not in having all the talents and all those things. Faithfulness is found in reflecting Jesus. And then we stare into Jesus and we reflect that out. We, we, we spend time with Jesus and we're simply reflectors of his glory and not our own. And not our own. And so reflect and imitate this Jesus. Imitate Paul and Apollos and how they're trying to live this out. Imitate that and walk in those ways. And finally, like don't just do this as a thought exercise. Actually respond and initiate these things in your life. Like, you think, like, what does it look like for me to be a servant of Christ? It, it has to mean more than just working at a door or in a kid's ministry, but it certainly doesn't have to be less. We don't just check out of those things. Like, like in our home, being a part of the family is certainly more than doing chores. Caroline and I will take out the trash later on tonight. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. There are things that have to be done. There are things that we need. And so respond, but respond recognizing these words from verse seven. For who sees anything different in you? In your response, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, this is really interesting in which he puts all this back in like, listen, everything that we have is grace from God. G.K. Chesterton, again, I mentioned him earlier. He's fascinating. Writer, thinker, theologian, art critic, collector. Like where'd that come from? I don't know. I don't, I don't understand all these things. G.K. Chesterton has this famous statement that he made where he noticed that the worst moment for an atheist is when he or she feels grateful and there's no one to thank. Because what have we read? It's all grace. <laughs> what do you have that wasn't given to you? What do you have that wasn't uh, the grace of God at work often through people in your life? What do you have that wasn't grace? And we live one way and that we respond a spirit-filled life. What does a spirit-filled life look like? One way that we do this is that it, it's many things, but it is marked by gratitude. It's marked by gratitude anchored in trust that there is someone to thank. And his name is Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith.